8 to 10 p.m. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. And the viewpoint, it absolutely is. I hope you had a good weekend as we get into a Monday. There's probably a range of issues we can talk about, like including what's happened with Donnell and that explosion and the and the changes, the political changes that appear to be taking place in the Northwest once again and, and solidarity embarking on a strike at, at Cecil around an issue of um, a share scheme offered to black staff only and they're protesting about all of that and of course the weekly drama, the nightly drama, in fact the book of Zone 6. All of that will touch on some aspects but that comes up later on. Let's however get going with our regular big hitter. We do this every single day. We start with a big hitter for an hour and we talk to that person. Our big hitter tonight is Hanif Van Fieren. He's got uh, many things attached to his name but the important ones, um, he is the founder of Open Secrets, whatever that means, is also the author of a book entitled, and this will certainly capture your imagination, Apartheid Guns and Money. So, Hanny's in the Cape Town studio. Hanny, good uh, chatting to you, and um, thanks for agreeing to be our big hitter for the night. Hi, good evening, Ashraf, and good evening to the listeners. Thank you Thank so you. much. Absolutely. Right, let, let's get let's get to two things. First of all, Open Secrets, What what is that? Yeah, indeed. Uh, it's a it's a non-profit organization. My colleagues and I work on issues of economic crime with a focus on primarily the private sector, Ashraf. It's a neglected area of focus, I think, in our society to look at the role that big corporations, particularly financial corporations, play in facilitating corruption, aiding and abetting crimes in the past against humanity in South Africa, and holding those actors to account. And, um, and so what we do is undertake investigations into some of these issues. We advocate for change, and um, we also develop litigation strategies. You Use the law and the rule of law in South Africa to hold these big uh, entities to account for the economic crimes that causes so much havoc and, and damage in our society. So I mean, that wouldn't be very different to say what what Outer may do, and even actually Solidarity suggesting uh, not not so you know there's a whole range of other organisations that suggesting what they do around uh, around putting pressure and, and holding people to account. It wouldn't be different to that, would it? Well, in part it is, Ashraf, and, and I'm. You know, I think it's important to recognize that um, we see the role of the, the state as being crucial as a as a player that does business with the private sector. But our starting position is, in fact, around the private sector. I think for most or many civil society organizations working in this field, um, we look and focus a lot on, on the role only of government. Um, and I think, you know, we, we can talk a little bit and explore this a bit more. But obviously for us, you know, there's a sense that um, South Africa provides a rich stream of lived experiences where we appreciate the fact that we very seldom have held big corporations to account um, for the crimes that they've played. Um, we not only have to look at state capture as it unfolds right now, certainly I think we've seen a much sharper debate about the role of big banks and accounting company firms, which we've seen uh, you know, the information coming out about the role they've played. But obviously during apartheid, big corporations made huge profits off uh, their collaboration with the apartheid regime. And there's been no attempt, uh, you know, in I think in a really honest, forthright way to use the law to hold those actors to account. Um, and so, you know, our argument is, number one, look at the, the private sector actors as, as, as really as a starting point. Number two, we recognize the fact that um, if we really want to tackle this story of economic crime in this country, we need to look at the bigger picture. That means that we can look at state capture and be critical of the actors that are involved there. But equally, we in the same thread can say there's a whole culture 
culture of practice that emanated from the apartheid period of actors that have never been held to account that informs so much of what has happened today and of course the multiple scandals in between what we hear today in the Nugan commit, uh, Commission or in the, uh, the Zondo Commission you know between that and the apartheid period there have been a range of other scandals where, where various people have not been held to account and, and it's that bigger picture that longer trajectory that, um, that we try to focus on as well. All right, so let's then, and then of course you, you wrote that book, and that maybe overlaps into into the issues of of uh, the the state machinery in the apartheid era, which is apartheid, guns, and and money. Just a quick quick synopsis of that book. We'll, we'll certainly get into detail on that in a moment. Uh, thanks, uh, Ashraf. Um, so it's a it's a book that really focuses on on precisely the story of economic crime during apartheid. It was a, an area that was underexplored by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, in fact, there were submissions made short and sharp by some business leaders, um, and many of them really argued that they were not to be held accountable for complicity with the apartheid system. And what we did, and I say we, it's myself and and my colleagues at Open Secrets, spent five years investigating. This. The state failed to do so in our country. The states have failed to do so in almost every other country to thoroughly examine the role of what we call a, a network of actors, the so-called deep state network that profited um, from supporting the apartheid regime specifically to bust sanctions. We recall from the late 1970s there were international sanctions in place against the apartheid regime that criminalized the supply particularly of weapons at the time that this country um, was at war and the apartheid um, regime was at war within southern Africa. And so the, the hard question we asked was, so who was supplying all of these goods and, and, and to, the, to, the, to the government at the time, the technical information, the weapon systems that were very sophisticated even at that time, and who made cash out of it, who profited? This couldn't only be ideological, there has to be more to it. And um, through working through archives in our country and across the globe, we managed to piece together, I think, a, a compelling tale, an evidence-based account of um, who those actors are, those corporations. We name the individuals, and I think in some instances, Expose some of them for the first time, and and the level of complicity uh, that they were involved in uh, through this this uh, I guess this extensive investigation. That All right, so I, I also want to I want to invite callers so you can join in on the conversation with uh, with myself and certainly with our guest tonight, uh, the big hitter Henry, uh, rather Henny van Fieren. He's the founder of well, Open Secrets, co-founder there, as well as the author of a book entitled Apartheid Guns and uh, Money. Questions to him, comments you wish to make to him, they're all welcome, and you can do that, A, by calling in 0891104207. If you are uh, SMSing, it's 40938. When you tweet, tag me, Ashraf Garda, as well as SAFM Radio, but do use the hashtag, SAFM Viewpoint. So, Henny, let's then talk about... Um, in terms of uh, your your initial thoughts around the open secret, right? Uh, I'm going to find out from you just how successful you are at in terms of you know being the watchdog, holding companies that that are possibly corrupt or allegedly corrupt to account, and whether you've been successful at nailing them down and what's happened. And maybe some names may get thrown in there. But let me let me just give you a second to think about that. Oh eight nine one one zero four two zero seven. The show is called the Viewpoint. It's your viewpoint as well, and you are entitled to use it and get that viewpoint live on the air if you call in now.
The sound of motorbikes roaring, the inspiring message of hope, love and life being spread through your community. This is Can Survive. Our message is simple. Early detection can save lives. There is life after cancer. Cancer knows no race, no gender and no age. Cancer affects us all. Become part of the conversation. Be the solution. Remember, you're not alone and never, ever be silent. Hashtag Can Survive. Supported by the SABC Foundation. September is a public service month and Hilungela Lako will be throwing the spotlight on the plight of communities who still struggle to access clean water and sanitation. Residents of Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape face health risks as a result of consuming filthy water and the lack of proper sanitation. Don't miss Hilungela Lako on Monday at midday, repeated every Thursday at 11pm on SABC1. Hard-hitting interviews on SAFM. Talking uh, to Hanny van Fieren from The Open Secrets, as well as he's written a book called Apartheid, Guns and Money. Hanny, let's talk about the, the Open Secrets in terms of some of the, you know, s- some of the working. So when did you start it um, and, and what impact has it made? Yeah, Ashraf, uh, we established the organization about 18 months ago. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's different ways of, of measuring success. But for us, I mean, certainly one of the things we've tried to do is, um, on the one hand, ensure that we can try and hold some of the actors to account and secondly, raise awareness. And um, I'd maybe use two examples of the work that we're doing. Firstly, is a, a, a bank and a group of banks we identified in our investigation into apartheid or economic crime that we we've been able to show through evidence was central to the apartheid regime's global money laundering network. In fact, the banks in Belgium and Luxembourg called Creditbank Belgium and Creditbank Luxembourg were probably at the behest of one of the biggest global money laundering sanctions busting operations we've ever seen, not only in South Africa, but around the globe. Um, And what we've done working together with other partners in civil society is not only publicize this and make the information available. Earlier this year, we worked together with lawyers from the Center for Applied Legal Studies at Wits University. We went to Europe and we've laid complaints um, with the governments in Belgium and Luxembourg through a mechanism that's available there, forcing them for the first time to um, in to investigate the, uh, the the complaints within the evidence we have of money laundering involving those banks. Um, and we know that there's some reluctance you know, to this given the influence they have in those economies. These are two significant banks um, in those countries. Um, so that was the first step for us. We're looking at the moment at the possibility of um, litigation using the South African courts against those banks. And I think there's definitely more news to follow about that in the next couple of months. And um, what we're trying to do through this Ashraf is not just it's not just you know a, a litigation strategy because there's nothing else that's available I think what we're trying to do is fulfill a gap that was left by the South African state and certainly other states who have failed to uphold the rule of law in holding these kind of actors account for their their criminality and, and the banks we mustn't forget um, we believe they were central to this money laundering network to the value of in today's rand value of about five or six hundred billion rand of money that flowed around the world to buy weapons for the apartheid regime at a time that that it was illegal and and um, so when when facilitating that, when setting up the front companies, when when putting in place the 
the not only the bank accounts but um, providing the channels for the apartheid regime over a period of good 15 years. They made huge profit off this, but obviously, equally, there was massive suffering. Those weapons, the the bullets um, that hit the bodies of of Southern Africans, not only South Africans, mm. they mm. were facilitated by banks like these um, that have profited from this. And so the question is, how can we try and hold these actors to account, particularly when we have a culture around the globe of trying to look the other way when it comes to gross violations of human rights, when it comes to the conduct of private companies. And, and so the other thing we're trying to do is really maybe show that in South Africa, um, we're trying to do something unique. Uh, many other countries, Colombia right now is struggling with the question of how to hold corporations to account after a very bloody um, civil war that's been waged there for many years. And most countries have failed to do so um, to date. South Africa wouldn't be unique in that respect. So for us, that's a that's a big initiative that takes a huge amount of time and effort, and, and uh, it, we rely on our comrade lawyers, uh, you know, our friends in the legal fraternity who give of their time generously to assist uh, in this regard. And then, Ashraf, if I can use a, you know, a second example for us was a really exciting initiative earlier this year. Open Secrets, working together with six other civil society organisations, organised the first People's Tribunal on Economic Crime, which took place at Constitutional Hill. We looked at economic crime in South Africa over the last. 40 years we have uh, this was focused on the arms sector and um, civil society organizations various people came forward with evidence of economic crimes in the arms sector stretching from the apartheid period to state capture today and um, the, the the we had a steam panel that was put together led by Justice uh, Zak Yaqub, um, Navi Pillay, leaders in civil society um, uh, who were part of that panel. And they'll be meeting again in Johannesburg in, in three weeks' time and making a final finding in terms of the culpabilities of various actors involved. Um, it's the first time that anyone in the world is focused on economic crime as a, as a people's crime, a people tribunal process. Often they look at genocide and other crimes, but we felt this was important precisely because impunity takes hold when civil society stands by and allows it to happen, where the state doesn't do its job of upholding the rule of law. And I think in trying to present this kind of evidence, what we're constantly banging home about, Ashraf, is that the information is there, whether it's the corruption in the arms deal of Tabo Mbeki, whether it's the apartheid era perpetrators, whether it's obviously the information on state capture today, there's a huge amount of material that's available. Our real challenge is getting the state institutions to do their work. And these processes, we hope, really send that message that it is possible. The material is there. We need the political will and we'll continue. And we wonder whether, we, whether you believe we have that political will. But let's put that thought on hold. My, uh, my guess, my big hitter is Hanny van Feeren. But you can join in and, uh, and engage the big hitter uh, by calling in. So let's get your thoughts. Joe's on the line from Durban. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ashraf. Thanks for the opportunity. First of all, let me comment and congratulate Henny and just say that strength to him and his, his, his team and Open Secrets and the lawyers, whoever else is helping me. I think this is such important work. Uh, it cannot be emphasized enough. Sadly, I think the reality of what we've seen, we're going to continue to see is that the state, unfortunately, is probably not going to do much simply because they're in disarray themselves. There's the bigger fish to fry at the moment. Uh, and, and, and really, I, I just want to take my hat off. You know, uh, Henny is, is the equivalent of, of, of our, uh, you know, the, what, what others overseas have done uh, and, and, and really strength to you. The question I have for Henny, 
uh, you know, during these investigations, I understand a lot of it is obviously focused on, on economic crime and rightfully so, is whether you came across instances where either countries themselves, uh, for example, perhaps like Israel and the United Kingdom in particular, or via the, the intelligence agencies, Mossad or the MI6, the CIA even, uh, directly or via fronting different organizations helped not only to bust sanctions, but also, you know, one thing of the contra Iran, uh, what, what the Americans did, you know, with, with heroin and arms in South America, whether we had similar type of operations running here, particularly involving those three countries, Israel, the USA, and... Okay, and, and, and let's, let, let's find out. These yeah. Reasons. All right. Uh, yeah. You Joe? Know, whether that... that in South Africa. Okay, got that, Joe. Thanks for that call. And of course, Henny would appreciate your vote of confidence. Henny, go ahead, respond A, to, to the general, well, the vote of confidence, but then also he specifically asked about, you know, the USA, UK, Israel, South Africa, and, and those links in the apartheid time, yeah? No, thanks, Joe. And I think this is definitely a, a collective effort by many of us involved. But, you know, to, to your question around countries, we've definitely identified, you know, in the book we have. Um, five chapters that deal with with what we call the big five, the members of the UN Security Council, um, who all in one way or another were complicit in enabling the supply of weapons to the apartheid regime. Even, you know, those include United Kingdom, the United States, France, definitely and very central to this, but also to a much lesser extent, but importantly, um, the Eastern Bloc, so the former Soviet, uh, part of this former Soviet Union, and definitely China, uh, which of course has a long-standing um, argument that it never collaborated with the apartheid regime, but we're able to show directly how even the, the you know, the one of the China's biggest uh, arms companies, which I believe has an office in Johannesburg today, Norinco, um, was directly involved and complicit, we believe, in supplying weapons to the apartheid um, regime. Um, but without a doubt, the United Kingdom facilitated this often through its um, front men. They were the people like Tuck T- Tiny Roland, if we think of one of the characters we discuss in the book, the man who was behind the Lonro Empire and, mm, of course, mm. uh, owned and started that mine at Marikana, uh, you know, the Lon Min Empire of, of mines, um, was central in, in not only assisting the apartheid regime, would provide intelligence, fly into Vartikluf Air Force Base, um, offer to provide um, missiles and other technology. And, in fact, some of that, maybe there's a link there directly from from Israel, from, from Mossad agents. Um, and Israel, of course, their relationship with the apartheid regime is being relatively relatively well established. It was very clear that from the mid-1970s until the late 1980s, South Africa was one of the primary procurers of weapons from Israel. A huge amount of South African foreign exchange went into buying weapons from Israel, co-developing weapons. um, And some of those weapons, of course, were tested in South Africa, whether it's long-range missiles or even the very earliest drone technology that's used in Israel. And I mean, you're very um, clear that's not up for debate. I mean, that's been been verified as has happened, yeah? Indeed, and I think the the documents, the evidence um, speaks to that. So I think um, those relationships are are very clear, and I think they're very important for us to recognize, Ashraf, because what governments tend to do is there's a fair amount of whitewashing. It's the same way as there's a a denialism amongst many 
particularly white South Africans, that they were never complicit mm, in apartheid. Mm, well, mm, that extends around the globe. There are a whole bunch of people, as we saw in Theresa May's visit last week, where you know she kind of fumbled about about her own role in um, in resisting uh, you know the links between the United Kingdom then and the apartheid regime. And there are many people, I think, um, who would argue that this never happened and want to talk about Nelson Mandela today. But the past is a complex place, and I think it's very important for us to hold up a mirror to it and recognize what actually happened and, and really who did pr- profit and benefit from those relationships. Okay, let's get, let's get to more calls. Safudi, you're going to come on in just a moment. But Felix from Nelspreit, let's get you on the end. What's your viewpoint, Felix? Thank you, Ashraf, for taking my call. Thank you. Always enjoy it. <laughs> yes, actually, I, I actually believe that what we are trying to do is very simple. We must remember that all of us, we are private citizens. So when we come together as a society, as a nation, as a country, what we are trying to do is to establish uh, a state that is going to harness our collective resources. And when this collective resources is harnessed, the state must be able to use it for our collective good, the good of the whole. That's what we are trying to do. It does not matter whether we are private or public. It's just the same. Nobody nobody's private or public or whatever, but we are just a collective of individuals trying to establish a state in which that state will be capable of harnessing our collective resources and utilizing that collective resources for our collective good. But the problem is this. We are not yet good enough. I think we are not human enough to be able to do what we are supposed to do. For example, if I have a boss at work that is making me to do illegal things, I should be able to be strong enough to say, no, I'm not going to be do that. I must be able to be strong enough to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Because if each individual can do that, there's no way we will not create a better society in this country. Mm-hmm. There's just no way. Well, point raised. Good good point indeed, Felix. Thanks for that call. Henny, I mean, we... In a way, we've had a tangent here, yet it's the crux of the issue, isn't it? That ideally, your your open secrets doesn't need to exist in an ideal world, okay? Because everything would just work perfectly. But Felix's point is interesting, that, that we all need to understand if something's wrong, even within a company, we need to stand up and oppose that. But but in your experience, in your research, both with apartheid South Africa and even now, is it much easier said than done? I mean, the reality is very different, isn't it? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think we all support, many of us might support Felix's point of view, but we've seen, um, I think, what one up is one, one is up against. I think when you take on the might of big corporate actors um, who can very easily crush whistleblowers who try and speak out, and certainly we've seen that, um, you know, even think about the, the people who leaked the, the Gupta leaks emails. Those are two people, from what we understand, that are in hiding outside of, of South Africa. And so I think there are certain certainly issues of which we, you know, there are good reason to be concerned. It is about us creating that enabling environment for whistleblowers, about making it easier to speak out, about making it easier for us to turn to state institutions who listen. But I think that that may, means and requires far more structural changes within the way in which institutions are governed. Um, you know, and, and uh, the idea, some people like to proffer the idea that we're in some phase now called after state capture. I mean, Ashraf, I think it's a highly mm, problematic mm, idea. Yeah. It's hogwash. We're in the midst of of problems that continue and persist. There have been maybe only a handful of 
successful um, attempts by the state to, or successful uh, prosecutions of corporate actors involved in large-scale corruption over the last 10 or 12 years. It means that that entire capacity has been hollowed out in the state. So even if you blow the whistle, this makes it incredibly hard. Now, I don't think that's a reason to stop believing in the state, in the institutions of the state, in the rule of law. But if anything, I think it needs, you know, we need to amplify our voices about the need for those kind of structural reforms that, that make it possible. And really, we need to focus on the elite, the top end of the pile. And that top end of the pile sits as much in Tswane as they do mm. in Sandown, in Constantia. And but I, but I mean, I, I forget the lady's name, but you know, the, 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 the person who was involved at ESCOM who who then understood the issues around uh, around the Guptas and then effectively became a whistleblower last year. I mean, you know, she's she's out of a job, right? And and uh, and that's the sacrifices you you make, and and they and they're big problems, and 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 they haven't looked at it very kindly. I mean, that's the risks you take. How do you defend against that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're talking about people like Suzanne Daniels and That's many the person, others. Yes, absolutely. Blown, blown, blown the whistle. Um, you know, I, th- I think that we need to firstly, I think, recognize the importance that uh, of the role that people like these play. And, and an argument has been made for a long time is we, we seldom hear. Uh, I mean, I'm very happy the president goes out for an early morning walk, but I, I think I'd really like him to be taking whistleblowers along on that walk to say, you know, these are examples of the people we want in our society. So we don't see that kind of a celebration of whistleblowers and recognizing the role that they play. Um, you know, and I think that it is precisely that is about making it easier for people like that to do what they do. But equally, I think if we are committed to the constitution of this country, to a democratic state that promotes greater equality and social justice in our society, then those of us who have access to information, who because maybe some of us in our class position are able to talk out, um, uh, we need to, you know, I mean, I think this is part of the the commitment to the democratic project in South Africa is doing precisely that. And I, and I, uh, I mean, it's not easy to, I think we recognize that this comes with real consequences of people's lives. Um, but, you know, it's central for us to move forward as a society. And you know, we have so many examples of heroes, of women and men in our past who've struggled for change in our country. And I think um, it's very clear when we come to, come to issues of economic crime, of corruption today, there are elements of a continuation of that struggle. And, and it does require, you know, I think, bravery, commitment um, from people who are able to help change our society. Okay, more calls. Sakide will get to you in a second. Uh, Ranfontein, and the, I'm going to call him the mayor of Ranfontein. Safudi certainly is, I think, anyway. Safudi, good chatting to you. Hello. Hi, Ashraf and your guest. How are you guys? I'm okay, good. How are you? Go ahead. You know, you know, my man, corruption by multinational is done with the connivance of politicians. There's a synergy between the two. And corruption, mostly here in our country, has long, the seed of corruption has long been planted and it has germinated and it will take more than fewer hennies to uproot it. Finally, finally, Paying for the sins of apartheid. Is it fair, Henny? We paid for the sins that were entered into during apartheid. 
What has this multinational given our politicians what, to what turn is, a blind eye? what's your solution? You. So as you ask that question, I, I have a sense you have an answer. If we don't pay for the sins of apartheid, what, what should we be doing? No, I'm asking heavy. I don't have a knowledge on that. Ah, but, the, but the other day you said you're the analyst. That's why I'm checking with you. Okay, thanks for that, Sifudi. Appreciate it. Let's get a response from Henny. Henny, go ahead. Yeah, I think Sifudi raises an important point. So what, what, what is, uh, maybe if I can paraphrase, I think the question, is there, is there a gun that these multinationals hold to the head of a democratic South Africa to say, if you act against us, we're going to make life hard for you? And, and, and in a way, I think it's a very insightful question because it is very true that if the democratic state under Nelson Mandela had attempted to hold the big banks, and those are not only the banks I mentioned in Belgium and Luxembourg, but many banks in Switzerland and Germany and elsewhere that profited hugely from making loans to apartheid South Africa that were paid off by democratic South Africa and by all South Africans, the so-called odious debt. Um, if the if the democratic South African state had decided to walk away from those loans, refused to pay them, the threat from many of these banks and others would be that um, they would destabilize credit ratings, they would make it hard for South Africa to access new loans and new capital, because which we clearly needed then, and to some extent we need now again. Um, and and I think that is the you know that is the difficulty that a newly emerging country like ours and many others face. You can have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You can even have some limited truth-telling in that process. But the real hard work of holding the big perpetrators to account, um, I think, is is almost, you know, it's, it's close to impossible at the time of transition. And so our argument is that's precisely why, um, you know, it's important for us not to let let that pass completely uh, in doing so. But it is also recognizing what an incredibly difficult position um, the forces of, uh, if you like, global capitalism, the way in which where money is concentrated around the world, how hard they make it to hold those actors to account. Absolutely. Okay, we'll get to other callers as well. Let's just take, let's take Sakili on the line now from Durban. Uh, Sakili, hello. Hello. Okay, go, go ahead. So, Kili, I'm, I'm, we, we're battling to, so we, we're really battling to you. Please try and call back if you can. Uh, we, we'll take your call immediately when you do that. I'll, I'll try and see if Ben can solve it. At the moment, we can't quite hear you. We'll get to Mike as well from uh, from Newlands in just a minute or so uh, or longer. Hany van Fieren with us, founder of Open Secrets as well as uh, he's the author of a book called Apartheid, Guns and, and Money. Hany, I, I don't want to let this go here. Let's, uh, I think the crux of your Apartheid, Guns and Money uh, book, right, is, is, the, is the premise that those that believe there was no economic crime uh, in Apartheid South Africa, there was no corruption, uh, that you debunk that and suggest that that last 15 years of um, of apartheid South Africa before the turnaround, there was there was massive corruption. T- tell us about that. Mm. Yeah, certainly, um, Ashraf. I think you know when we look at the debates around state capture uh, and contemporary corruption, um, I think we we tend to focus. Uh, there's often a focus, rather, um, in ma- on many p- public platforms to suggest that there's this kind of either or. It's it's uh, it was either everything is bad now or it was so called bad before. And and you know we've we've also struggled with these ideas that the ideas of corruption of economic crime or something that are 
part and parcel of a democratic system. And in South Africa, that often is code for a black-led government. And and I think one of the things that we tried uh, as Open Secrets to try and challenge is this idea um, that it has to do um, with democracy. In fact, it's about the concentration, the monopolization of power, of secrecy, which was so central to the way in which the apartheid regime conducted itself. And particularly, we saw that under the last years of the the, the, the regime under the leadership of P.W. Boerta, where power was increasingly centralized, there was a greater role for the securocrats within the government administration. Um, we saw a kind of practices that continue until now, finally, almost 20 years into democracy. We have more than 20 years into democracy. We might have a law that regulates the funding of political parties. But then, as in now, it was a free fall. You could fund any political party you wanted, um, and particularly the national party. And we believe you no doubt got kind of you got kickbacks in, in return um, from the regime at the time. Um, and certainly, you know, I think this practice of, of what some big business leaders we spoke to, very wealthy people still today, argue that they were involved in little petty crimes of sanctions busting. Those are serious international offense, offenses. And I think many honest business leaders from the time have admitted that uh, a practice entered the way into which the private sector worked of, um, you know, of, of regularly uh, committing fraud in order to be able to circumvent sanctions uh, and and uh, the embargo against apartheid. Uh, and that kind of practice you don't get rid of overnight. And that became part and parcel to the DNA of the private sector in our country as well. And, and how so, big? I mean, give us, you know, give, give Give us an idea. Help us understand how how big, how rampant it was. Yeah, Ashraf, you know, I think we should always caution, and I, I'm going to give you the hard answer, not the easy one. I don't think it's helpful for us to try and quantify the corruption in you know, RAND values precisely because for two reasons. One is it's hard for us to, because of its very nature and secretive nature, we can't uncover it all. And secondly, the damage that corruption causes can't be quantified in rands. The lost opportunities, the extension of, um, for example, during apartheid, of apartheid rule, the oppression, the, the missed opportunities for so many people. Um, and so I'm very reluctant to, to do the easy thing to try and put forward the rands and cents. But it was clearly huge. I used the one example, if one wants to talk about monetary value, this secret defense account that um, Boerta's regime could draw from with almost no oversight by the apartheid parliament, the Auditor General's office, and spend to, to buy weapons across the world. I mean, that was amounted, as I said, in rand value today, almost half a trillion rand that was spent in buying weapons over which there was almost no oversight. And there was great opportunity um, for corruption, for, for, for abuse there, and certainly, um, you know, for, for busting and breaking um, international law. And, and so that's, you know, really is, is, um, is the heart of, of criminality. And, and despite the fact that we have a new constitution, that we, we imagined new institutions that would change all of this, I think we need to recognize how difficult it is to turn around all of these ways of practice and when we think, Ashraf, if I can use one example of the, the big corruption scandal of the late 90s that lives with us until today, the arms deal of 1999 yeah. mm. under Thabo Mbeki, 
Jacob Zuma and the big French arms company Talis stand accused of corruption today. It is, in a way, the genesis of the state capture, which we talk about under the Guptas today. That was possible because of the role of big arms companies that came to our country and bribed our politicians. And remember, many of our politicians and the middlemen who live in Santon and elsewhere were very helpful in that process. But it's the same arms companies that were involved, many of them, in busting sanctions during apartheid. And so they've got a history of criminality in our country, of poisoning the well in this country. Um, and I think it's recognizing you know, those, those kind of continuities that exist and precisely how this old practice in some ways certainly informed what we have today. And, and I think, therefore, the untangling of creating the new in our country means it is really digging down and exposing the very, you know, the very deep nature of that rot. Okay, just let's pause on that and we'll pick up on maybe what your thoughts are with regard to the, the state uh, of uh, capture investigation that's going on right now, or commission. Let's get Mike's thoughts from Newlands. Mike, welcome to the show. Hi. Hello, Ashraf. Yes, good evening to you and good evening, Henny. And uh, yes, I do have your book, Party Guns and Money, and I have to confess I haven't read it. I'm waiting for that time when I can sit down and really enjoy it, but I have, uh, I've got it all settled and looking at it, and I'm ready to go. But I want to just comment on uh, something. I've just finished reading The Lost Boys of Bird Island, and just picking up on your point there on the corruption under apartheid, uh, it makes reference in that book to Magnus Malan and the access he had uh, to, the, to funds um, and, and this massive corruption uh, that took place under apartheid. Um, I suppose what I'm sort of getting to is that it's, I'm, I'm sitting having been through the Defence Force and having watched uh, South Africa under the apartheid regime, um, and now I'm looking at South Africa today under the ANC. Um, we seem to be almost reliving, in my case, I'm reliving the past, the same frustrations I had when I was a conscript in the army and just thinking, where does all this money come from that is keeping this illegal regime going? We now have a similar situation where massive corruption is taking place within the ANC. And these arms companies are quite happy to do business with us, as you just alluded to. Um, I suppose what I'm saying is that picking up on a point you made is that we need to highlight it. But we seem to have a situation anywhere um, under apartheid, the, the, the majority of people seem to not be aware of what's going on. And under the ANC, the majority of people do not seem to fully understand. And perhaps the Zonda is going to, uh, commission is going to bring this out. But I'm not sure that the people on the ground are really grasping just how much trouble we're in and, in a sense, how we mirror. Your okay, got that. Your Th- comments. Thank thanks, you. thanks for that, uh, Mike from Newlands. Is always getting us thinking. In fact, uh, we'll, we'll pick out some of the tweets in a moment. SFM viewpoint when you are tweeting, and then you tag me Ashraf Garda as well as SFM Radio. In fact, you'll find uh, Hanny van Fieren on Twitter as well. So if you find me on my timeline, you'll find him there as well. I'll get I'll get Hanny to respond in a moment. When a top chef contracts a deadly disease that can only be caused by having an appetite for human flesh, South Africa's elite crime-fighting unit, The Ravens, must find the culprits of this deadly menu. Secrets and lies, betrayal and murder, this team has a taste for bringing down the bad guys. It's just another day on the job for Marlon van Weyck and Siki Morcha and their team, The Ravens. Catch The Docket, only on SABC3 at 9.30pm on Wednesday, September the 5th. Whether you like it or not, the truth has a way of coming out. And never have I ever made out with a stranger. 
Never have I ever had to do the walk of shame. <laughs> well, we're older, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag WTF to me, Mondays and Tuesdays at 9.30pm, only on SABC3. Northwest Provincial Legislature's Portfolio Committee on Health and Social Development and Portfolio Committee on Public Works, Roads, Transport and Community Safety will conduct public hearings on the National Health Laboratory Amendment Bill and National Land Transport Amendment Bill on the 5th September 2018 at Mahikeng Embassy Hall, Tsing Community Hall Extension 5 in Ventersdorp and Ipilegeng Community Hall in Swaizerenike Labani Community Hall in Rustenburg. All hearings are scheduled to start at 9. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. Having a fascinating chat with our big hitter for the night, Hanny van Vieren. Uh, he's written a book called Apartheid, Guns and Money. He's uh, also the founder of Open Secrets, and we'll find out more about uh, who funds Open Secrets. I want to ask this question. Some people are asking a similar question as well. Let's just pause on that for the moment. Let's go back to that point from Mike, uh, from Yulin, suggesting about you know the lack of awareness from the public in apartheid South Africa and even now. G- give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks, Ashraf. Maybe just one quick correction. I, you know, I, I I would hate to be the founder. I think there are many people <laughs> okay. who contribute. So we're 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 a, we're a team, and it's a collective effort. But but Ashraf, to Mike's question around, um, you know, the, I mean, Mike raises this this point around whether we are you know want to be ignorant of the impact of economic crime and the nature of of what's going on. Um, I, I you know I can't. I'm not trying to suggest that I speak on behalf of ordinary South Africans. But let me rather just give you. An insight into this People's Tribunal on Economic Crime, which took place earlier this year. And I think one of the extraordinary, con- some of the extraordinary contributions were from a group of about more than a dozen civil society organizations who spoke very powerfully and very movingly about the impact of economic crime, of corruption, of inequality in people's daily lives in South Africa, whether it's movements like Equal Education or the Treatment Action Campaign, um, Unpaid Benefits Campaign. These are all um, people within civil society on a daily basis aren't necessarily fighting state capture as they every day, but they're fighting the consequences of inequality. And, and one of the drivers of that inequality, not the only one in our society, continues to be crimes by the elites, the big economic crimes in our society. And and I think, um, you know, I, I would argue that a vast number of South Africans are, are, are certainly acutely aware of the nature of these things. Um, I think that we what we often share in common is a sense of powerlessness when it comes to tackling some of these actors. It's precisely why there's need for more collective action between civil society and organizations in, 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 in terms of, um, of tackling this. And, and I think that um, in a society where we have a massive flow of information, but we also have a huge amount of disinformation, people who act as so-called disruptors, but who are really just trying to, you know, to, to spread untruths of, uh, information that isn't based on facts and evidence. I mean, I think those are powerful forces in our society as well. And and um, and I, th- you know, I, I would really argue that there's a place for for investigative work, investigative mm. research, mm. and the sharing that needs to happen through civil society organisations, community organisations, and others. Particularly when our political parties let us down, they don't play that role in organising and mobilising um, that they once did. And and I certainly you don't you don't think they doing. do some of them, all of them. 
I don't think it's fair to say all of them, but I think in many, you know, I think in many instances, um, we don't see the kind of organizing by political parties within communities. Um, they are some of the political parties, I think, are definitely owned uh, by the people who fund them, the criminal syndicates, the the big corporations, um, and they feel less beholden to the people who should be putting them into place, their, their voters and the, the branch structures that, that should be driving them. And we don't see, I don't think we, we look at all the political parties, I think, there's there's more often more chaos within many of the branch structures um, than they had experienced in the past and I think that's a real challenge for for entrenching democracy in our society so those I think are powerful forces to help counter um, some of the issues of corruption and precisely the kind of work that needs to be done okay there's there's lots of other questions people want to put to you I'll just pause on that let's talk about so yes you're not just can I say co-founder, right, of the Open Secrets, yeah? Indeed. Okay. Uh, let's talk about funding of the Open Secrets. It's, I want to ask it. It's come up from a couple of people as well, uh, SMSing us. You know, yeah, well, how, where do you get your funding from? No, I think it's a crucial question, Ashraf, and, um, you know, I th- we're very open and transparent about that and the information's on our website. Um, so we receive, we don't, firstly, as a, as a rule, take any money from corporations or f- directly from any governments. Our funding is um, through two channels, um, primarily through uh, f- private uh, foundations, so the Open Society Foundations mm. in South Africa and their Human Rights Initiative um, Claude Leon Foundation, Heinrich Paul Foundation, those are our, our funders. Um, we work off a modest budget that also helps to support our investigations. The funders don't directly get involved in our decisions of what we're going to investigate and who we're going to investigate. And if necessary, we'd investigate, uh, you know, firms or companies that, um, you know, if, if any of those philanthropy organizations may be invested in, we'd look at them as well. Um, and of course, we, we welcome any support from the public. We have a link to give and gain on our website and and we're also always grateful for every 10 rand that helps mm. to keep the light. And how do you hold them to account if, you know, if you're not taking it from business or government and you're taking it from open societies and a whole lot of others, you know, to what degree are you in a position to, uh, to investigate uh, their revenue streams? Yeah, I, I, we've never, you know, I think um, the, we've never been put in a position where we've even been asked, uh, you know, put any pressure on us uh, to not investigate anything and certainly where there's been a sense that some of our investigations may lead in in, in an area where there's a direct interest from, from those philanthropists. In fact, we've been told in some interests, you know, you need to go ahead and do your work. And, and for us, that's, that's crucially important is precisely that in independence um, as, as, a, as an organization. I think integrity is hard fought for and, and easily lost. And, um, and I think that's, uh, you know, we try and emulate good work work done by organizations like Amabungane and other investigators in this country who, who I think make a, an important contribution to our democracy. Okay, there's a, there's a couple of questions uh, we've got from uh, listeners who are actually SMSing us, 40938, and they're tweeting as well. Let me just see if I can pick out some of those. Um, so was there such a thing as red mercury? You, you, you got that? Yeah, Ashraf, it's a it's a substance that was um, you know I've we've tried to look into the substance that was supposed to be on board a South African. Some people have suggested about board a South African Airways um, airplane that crashed off the coast of Mauritius. In 1987, 1988, the Helderberg, um, and there were some investigations in, in the 1990s that suggested there was this material. From what I understand, um, from everything I've looked at, we could find nothing to substantiate that that it existed. Very often, it was a, a so-called uh, it was a you know a highly f- 
flammable toxic uh, or highly flammable um, uh, uh, fuel that had been developed, um, supposedly developed, but in fact, very often these were fraudsters who were trying to sell this to governments as a, a very big secret weapon. So I, I certainly don't, uh, in our investigations, we haven't been able to um, verify the existence of, okay. of the substance. Well, what do you make, uh, you know, you're someone the biggest gangster will get his punishment uh, in hell, I get it, is F.W. de Klerk. He and his cronies are thieves. What happened in 1970 and 1980 makes today's corruption a picnic is, is is today a picnic compared to before yeah Ashraf, i mean i think um it's it's not helpful for us constantly to compare i mean i think we need to hold all of these characters up to to account obviously it galls me as i think it should ordinary south africans when i hear somebody like uh, fw de Klerk stand up and talk about the need for accountability in our country the need for for tackling issues of corruption when he was part and parcel of that system. He sat in those cabinet meetings when the use of the secret defense account was decided upon the clerk and all of his ministers sat around and they were yarbrews. They nodded their heads in agreement. And, um, and I think, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really unfortunate that Mr. De Klerk and his, uh, well, some say cronies, his friends, uh, you know, I think it would be very honest for them to say uh, we want the issue of corruption tackled because we've seen this thing, uh, you know, firsthand within a system that we governed, that, that we were the head of. And, and that hasn't happened. And so I, I think it's understandable that many people feel that there's a, a deep sense of, yeah, perhaps irony, but certainly hypocrisy from the mm-hmm. side of the clerk and others in the way they talk we'll about We'll get to issues. Colin in just a moment. Before I do that, uh, Annie, let, let's talk about now and and this uh, this investigation into state capture that that's going on in South Africa as we speak what have you made of of the last week yeah i think this is you know and i i compare this as well if i can ashraf to past investigations we've had into corruption uh, commissions of inquiry you know if we think back 5 6 years ago we had the sariti commission looking into corruption in the arms deal and there's without a doubt this commission that commission rather was largely a whitewash there was no real attempt to investigate when the people that were linked to corruption in the arms deal we're thinking of the you know the fanatlangwanis and others came they were basically given a free pass to be able to tell whichever narrative suited um, the evidence leaders and the commissioners and uh, and no hard questions were asked of them and the same applied to the whistleblowers they were basically shut up when it came to trying to present hard evidence of corruption i think we've seen the beginnings of an opening through the zondo commission of a real desire by uh, really a state body to try and get to the bottom of some of these issues i think it's important that we've had some of these so-called big hitters in a way you know the people who have mm-hmm. information about corruption firsthand are right up front. They set a tone in saying, we are here, we are prepared to talk about this. Some of them still hold positions in the state and elsewhere. Um, and in fact, where there are, there's an inference that there's been an attempt to try and influence them. The suggestion, of course, we saw with the uh, you know, the allegations, Jimmy Manyi was trying to influence one of the witnesses. Yeah. The witnesses mm-hmm. spoke out about it. And I mean, that's precisely what I think we want to see. But, but what it shows you, know, you, and we're talking about, you know, uh, I mean, and some of the testimony that's come through is the incredible bravery that, that it's taken and uh, and even even then if there's no overt pressure there's there's, there's a pressure that is there um, that no matter what and it and it really puts them into a position that I think we sometimes uh, are almost unsympathetic to say just to what degree uh, do they have to go through before they actually come and front up uh, publicly and testify isn't it 
Absolutely. I think we really need to, you know, commend those those women and men who are prepared to come out and to speak out. And and as you say, the pressure comes from all sides. It's it's uh, it's the pressure that they face from um, from individuals, from corporations, and others um, who don't want this truth to be out. And I think it's going to get tough ahead. We shouldn't forget that the you know the other parties, whether it's the big consulting companies, whether it's the the you know the accountants and others, um, the more they see the risk of themselves being held to account. The Dudizani Zuma and others have said as much. They are lawyering up and they are going to be having their lawyers grill many of these witnesses. Rightly, they have the right to do so. But, you know, I think they're going to be placed under immense pressure um, in, the, in the months ahead. And I think it's precisely why we need a you know, really independent judge to lead a process like this and, and, and you know, evidence leaders who have mm, the capacity absolutely. to... Let's get, a, let's get another call. Colin, uh, go ahead. Hello. Hi, good evening, Ashra. Good evening to your guest. Good evening, indeed. No, Ashra, I've heard so many um, um, on your radio stations in uh, 2000 about uh, people talking about um, the apartheid and they're talking about what's going on now. Okay, let's, let's start from the beginning. Apartheid was bad. But when uh, democracy came in 1994... Wasn't it the duty for Nelson Mandela and his followers that fought for freedom to say, look here, we know what we went through, we know what happened, the corrupt government of apartheid, and so and so and so and so. We are determined now not to do it. Must we, as I say, monkey see, monkey do? You see what I mean? So you don't, you don't, if the apartheid government was evil, then that means the democracy government doesn't have to be evil. Well, but I think you're, sta- you're, sta- evil. you're stating the obvious today, Muslim. The question is why, uh, and it's why? not everybody. But it's not I'm everybody. Sure. I think we have to be we have to nail it down to individuals uh, yeah. if we need to do that. Colin, thanks for that call. I mean, have we got that right? You can't like, like you can't say everybody in apartheid South Africa in terms of the, we're talking of corruption only, not about grand apartheid. In the same way, you can't now paint everybody with the same brush, isn't it? Well, I mean, maybe Ashraf, if I can say, I think uh, the important point that Colin makes is, is I think, you know, we can look back at the apartheid system and remind ourselves that that isn't who we want to emulate. We yeah. don't want to mm-hmm. become that. Mm-hmm. The economic, if it comes about questions of economic crime, secrecy within the state, um, the activities of the corporate sector, the unfair practices in terms of the way in which, you know, people's dignity, you know, in, in terms of labor practices, they're robbed of their dignity, the list goes on. And so that's precisely, I think, what, you know, is the example of what we never want to become as a society again and uh, and I think that's the message about why we need to be tackling these issues of economic crime and corruption with, with as much figure as we can. Yeah. And does that surprise you that, that we uh, that, that we haven't learned those lessons that uh, yeah, you, you're coming from a moral high stand, South Africa, democratic South Africa and still you know, people have succumbed to, to this level of you know, uh, putting money into their private pockets as in corruption? Yeah, I think, Ashraf, you know, the thing is, um, I think what, you know, we, we perhaps put ourselves, we argue ourselves into a corner when we say we failed to learn, we didn't draw those distinctions. I think certainly there's an argument to be made for that, but also for us to recognize that it's really hard when you've got some of the big players in your society who haven't necessarily changed. Where you have, you know, we gave the examples of the big arms companies involved during apartheid who were 
ready and willing to corrupt our politicians after apartheid. That doesn't mean that our politicians aren't culpable, that Jake Kuzuma shouldn't be held to account, but I think it's recognizing the complexity of that situation. And um, we give nobody a free pass, but, but I mean, I think clearly it's, it is recognizing that there were many people that wanted the way in which this country had operated uh, as a place for looting and extraction, for that not to change. And so in a way what the Guptas were doing is they were emulating many of the masters of the past who had made much more money out of looting this country. Um, you know, and, and I think that for us is the lesson. It's about how do we build a future of this country where we invest in its people um, as opposed to this process of continuous extraction of moving money offshore and, and in, always in the but, interest but, of and, the And here's, here's the last part. It, it does, and we've got about a minute to go, this, this relationship between business and government can we say that it's an ongoing thing all around the world and it's a very unholy relationship, never mind who's in power? Our problem is a global one, Ashraf. These are definitely the so-called open secrets. They're things we know about that exist in our society. And, and if we're going to tackle it, we have to start here. And if we tackle it, I think we have to tackle that problem with both in the private and the public sector with, it, with an equal amount of energy. Thus far, we haven't done so, and I think it's time for that to change. Now, we've got 30 seconds to go. Is, is there one final point you wish to make uh, to, to the listeners regarding this, this point about open secrets? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one is we would certainly appreciate the support um, from ordinary South Africans, but equally, above all, we want people to be engaging with, with the facts, with the information. We hope to produce more of that through our investigations. We hope that people talk in their, you know, amongst their families about the information that comes out of our own investigations so that, again, it's not only in the hands of a few, but it needs to be in the mouths of the many. And that's where we are going to leave it. Besides the other things around uh, the open secrets, got the book called Apartheid Guns and Money. Hanny van Fieren, thanks for being our big hitter for the night. You're on Twitter. If you want to say even more things, just continue doing that. Uh, tweet us, hashtag SFM Viewpoint. I will certainly pick it up and we'll share that as well. Thank you so much for your time. Lots more to come around many issues. Northwest is one of them. And uh, that blast in Denal at Denal. We'll follow that up in a moment. Let's get the news. It's nine o'clock.